he wishes he was a lady and then has to correct by saying immediately something manly. But this, this summer, we had a women's uh, play kickoff. And if any of you remember, any of you ladies who were there, guess who played a lady? Pastor Paul, right? I'm going to chat in my office later, my friend. <laughs> We know you were joking. Well, welcome this morning. I'm so glad you're here. We are, uh, as I've told some of you before, we are in a uh, week two of a series just called Vision 2015. Where are we going for 2015? Before we get into that, though, we've had a, um, a cool and a generous donation. Hey, Josh, can you get the, the main lights? Um, uh, of, of Bibles. And one of the things I've been wanting to do and we've been wanting to do here as a church is to give out Bibles to anybody who needs them. We believe the Word of God is alive and active and powerful. And there's some Bibles in the front of your seats if you don't have a Bible. But also, um, through uh, Dr. Gordon Coulter, our former pastor, there was a donation made. And what we thought, we'd, we'd try it out. We bought a box of Bibles and we said, hey, anybody who, maybe you came to church and you're like, oh man, my Bible's in my car or... Mine's at home or something like that. And you need a Bible, just raise your hand and the ushers will come and bring you one. If you don't have a Bible for yourself, take that with you. Take, that's your Bible, write your name in it, underline Bible passages, read it every day, that's yours. Um, if you do have a Bible and you're just borrowing it for the day, there'll be a box in the back on the way out the door. Just toss them back in the box. We'll lightly place them. We don't want them all to rip. Um, in the box in the back and uh, we'll use them continuously. And um, our hope is that we run out of Bibles and we have to buy more. That's our hope, and that we'd be able to give those out. So um, if you need a Bible today, we got ushers in the back. If you need one, yeah, Latina's right over here. Raise your hand right over here. Just grab one, and there's a little note in the front um, as to how we got those Bibles, and so check that note out as well. So we, like we laid out last week, if you weren't here last week, I would suggest go back online and listen to the message because we laid out the kind of the theological groundwork for this new vision statement. And, and that is simply this. It's on the front of your bulletin. We want us all to get it. It's transforming lives, families, and communities through the truth, love, and power of Jesus Christ. We really believe here that transformation is possible and that God wants to do something amazing. We really do believe in human transformation. We've seen it. We've seen it here in this church. We've seen it in our lives. And, um, and we've seen it through friends, and, and we've seen it all over the place. We've even seen it through history. But if you have your Bible, uh, flip with me to Ezekiel chapter 36 this morning. We're going to start in Ezekiel 36, um, kind of beginning in verse 20. And we're just going to talk for a few moments about what we look like to the world and the reason why we need transformation. And then we're going to get into some more of what our church is going to be doing in the next uh, couple years uh, biblically. So I want to start with this thought. The only way that the world knows God is through Christians. The only way that the world can like, get a picture or define God is through other Christians. More than likely, the rest of the world who's not coming to church on Sunday morning is not saying, I wonder what the Bible has to say about that. And, and looking for it. They're, they're probably just not doing that. There's some, I have atheist friends, and as many of you know, I, it's one of my outreach ministries is um, in, in the interfaith stuff, dealing with people with different backgrounds and, and doing debates and things like that. It's one of my favorite things to do. And they read some of the Bible. They probably read it more than, than a lot of Christians, but they don't believe a word it says. They read it to refute it. And um, 
So the only way that people get a picture of God is through you. There's many people in this world that only have a picture of God because they ran into one of you or they ran into me. And, you know, I think that that's what God is trying to say through his word. Ezekiel 36, we're going to start in verse 20 this morning. And Ezekiel is giving this polemic, and a polemic is a literary term for saying he's talking, he's talking some trash on God's people. Um, for all of you English majors, you just cringed at my definition of a polemic. Um, and, and he's talking about God's people and their history and what they've done. And then he says this, And wherever they went among the nations, they profaned my holy name. I mean, this is God speaking through Ezekiel. For it was said of them, these are the Lord's people, and yet they continue to leave his land. I had concern for my holy name, which is the house of Israel, which the house of Israel profaned among the nations where they had gone. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. I will show you the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. The nations will know I am God. I am the Lord, uh, declares, uh, declares the sovereign Lord. When I show myself holy through you before their eyes. When I show myself holy through you before their eyes. So five times in four verses, God says, you have profaned my holy name through your actions. He uses the word profane. Do we think this word profane is then important? Absolutely. The third commandment is you should not take the name of the Lord in vain. And, and when you're a kid, you think like, you know, you don't want to say God, whatever. And that's true. I mean, you clearly don't want to say that. You don't want to cuss. And of course, that's all true too. But really what God is saying is profaning my name is proclaiming to do something, proclaiming to live in my covenant and living a complete opposite way. Proclaiming that you follow God and yet following yourself in every way imaginable. Proclaiming that you only care about what God desires, yet going after your own desires with your whole heart. God says, that's as much profaning my name as anything else. And what he's saying in this passage, and if you were to take all of Ezekiel 36, one of the things that he's saying is, listen, you've continually profaned my name. Because all through history, this is what people have done with their gods. Um, they've taken their gods and they've said, okay, this is the god of sex. And so they base their sexual ethics around this God, or this is the God of relationships, this is a God of fertility, this is a God of the harvest, and, and they made these other gods work for them, basically. Although these other gods were all false and didn't actually do anything. And what God is essentially saying to his people here is, this is what's happened with me. You've treated me the same way you've treated the Ashereth poles. You've treated me the same way you've treated Baal. You've treated me the same way as foreign nations treat their other gods. You've profaned my name. When you wanted to do something your own way, you said, oh, this is the Lord's way, when it really wasn't. When you wanted to, to, to fulfill your own desires, you said, this is what God must want for me, but it really wasn't. When you said, you know, all these different things, you, you've proclaimed that I was on your side, but I, I, that was, actually couldn't be further from the truth. You've profaned 
my name. And this is what Ezekiel is trying to say in chapter 36. But he says something equally as interesting. He says, you know, if you were to keep reading, he says, but I'm going to bring you back to your land. I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to write my law in your heart so that you will not disobey. I am going to give you my spirit. I'm going to pour that out into you so that you can live. But he says something really interesting. He says, not for you, not for your sake, but for my holy name. He continues to say that in Ezekiel 36. He keeps saying, I'm not doing this for you. I'm doing it for my holy name. And we're like, man, is God selfish? What what does he mean there? And then even in Ezekiel 36, go down to verse 32. It says, I want you to know that I am not doing this for your sake, declares the sovereign Lord. Be ashamed and disgraced for your conduct, people of Israel. I mean, God is telling people, listen, you've all screwed up. Be ashamed at that. You've profaned my name by, by proclaiming that you, you love me and yet not living anything close to where my laws and decrees are. Not even close. You've profaned it. And so we get this picture, we get this idea that, that God is saying, I am not doing this for your sake. What is he doing this for? His sake. For his holy name. And what does that mean? That means God is going to transform and and create within us this new heart, not so that you could be great, but so that his name could be great in this earth because other people only know God through Christians. They've only ever seen representations of God through us. And so God is saying, I'm gonna, I am going to transform your lives. I want to bring real transformation. I want to pour out my spirit. I want to pour out truth. I want to pour out my entire life into you so that my name could be made great among the nations. As simple as that. And I was, I was thinking about that. In fact, I didn't have this even written into my message till this morning for, I don't, know, I don't know if you're the same way as me, but ideas hit me in the shower. And this morning I was taking a shower and just Ezekiel 36 popped into my head in a powerful way. And I thought, wow, I've got to start with this. Whatever people know about God, they know because of God's people. And so I was thinking about this this week, or this morning, really, and, and I was thinking, we have churches that no longer have biblical sexual ethics tied to Scripture. We have people whose biblical ethics on money no longer relate to Scripture. Or we have churches. We have churches who regularly go after prestige and, and being great rather than making God's name great. We have churches even that have failed God's name. Even in, if you read Romans 2, one of the things that, he's, that Paul is saying to the Jews, he says, the, the Gentiles are blaspheming the name of God because of your conduct, the way that you're living. And if you read the book of, of Peter, he says, in all things, make the gospel attractive through your lives, whatever people know about God. Whatever people think about Jesus, they think because of the way that we live. Would we say that the way that we live now is really important? I would. I would absolutely say that. So that, to me, highlights the need for transformation because in my heart, I say dumb things. In my mind, I make bad decisions. You know, it, it, when, I, when it comes down to it, I am a sinner just like anybody else. And I profane God's name in the way that I live at times. 
And I don't want to do that, but highlighting and reading this verse, I mean, how many times have I said, I think this is what the Lord wants to do, and, and maybe that's failed. Maybe that's not what God wanted to do. Do we profane God's name in our actions? So I just want to lay out this thought at the very beginning of our time here together is that sometimes the only picture that people have of Jesus is by the way that we live. And that's that. I mean, it's a simple thought. It's, but how many times have we said one thing and lived a different way? How many times have we said we're going to do something but didn't do it? How many times? And so I want to invite us to do something. I mean, this kind of uh, random, right in the middle of a message, I want to invite us to just simply be real and honest before God. Just, I'm just going to give us like 30 seconds. I mean, it might take way longer for you to do that. But we, we also have time that we want to keep and a lot to go through today. And maybe you're here and you've gone, man, that's me. I, uh, I, have, I have profaned God's name in my actions and thought and deed and and I just need to, to stop that. I need to admit that to God right now. We're just going to give you 30 seconds of just complete stillness and quietness. It's going to feel like two hours because we're not a people that are used to quietness. I just want to invite you to offer that up to the Lord. The Bible says that the offerings of God are a broken and contrite heart. I think if we're going to get to transformation, it needs to start with what Jesus said, and that's repentance. So if we're going to get there as a church corporately, if we're going to get there as a people individually, if we're going to get there as families, then it needs to start right there with repentance. And it simply means changing your mind. So I'm going to give you 30 seconds. Just want you to take this time to just pray and offer that up to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, so many times we profane your holy name. Sometimes we don't even realize we do it. Sometimes we just say something and are immediately disappointed in ourselves. And God, we need to start right here with repentance. Lord, we remember what you said when you invited people into your kingdom. You simply said, repent and believe the kingdom is at hand. And God, we believe that your kingdom has come and is here. And we get to join you in your good and redemptive work. But God, it starts with repentance. And if we want to join you with that, we simply need to say, Lord, we've profaned your name at times, and we don't want to live that way. Help us to live a different way. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So like I said, repentance is the beginning. But our vision statement is big, that we actually want to transform lives. And, and it starts with repentance. It starts right there. We're saying, God, I want to. I got to change this attitude. I got to change this mind and walk a different way. So it starts with repentance. But what was Jesus's transformation plan? And I want you to know, as a board, we've 
really looked at this. I mean, really in depth. Probably every single board meeting we've had for like the last six months, we have looked at what is Jesus's transformation plan because we want to have a transformation plan that looks like Jesus's in our church. And so what is that going to look like? And so I just want to start right in with saying a couple things. One, when Jesus saw that God's people profaned his holy name, I mean, he saw that. He had a plan. He didn't just walk through life with people aimlessly. His disciples, it wasn't just some aimless thing. But there's actual, like, spiritual waypoints along the way. What he he did with his disciples is absolutely incredible. But first of all, I want to mention this. Jesus put all of his eggs in one basket. We don't see all kinds of different methods Jesus used. He used one method, and it's the rabbinical form of discipling. Disciple-making. He had 12 guys come and live life with him. And we know that there was time where there was women who came and, and were with him, and there were 72. So we know that there's more than just 12. But what, one of the things we, we believe, uh, and biblical scholars believe, is that those 12 were influencing the other 72 and, and helping them along the way. But in the Bible, in the New Testament, we see the word disciple occur 269 times. That's a lot of times in the Bible. It means there's significance there. And the word Christian is used three times in the Bible. See, I think it's important in our context here that we do what Jesus did. That means we need to build a brand new culture in our church and in the culture of disciple making. What that means is you come to church and maybe you come to know Jesus for the first time and and we help grow you in a process that leads you to this, this kind of life where your desires and your life is changed and formed into knowing and wanting what God wants. So it's a process. We need to build a culture in which someone comes to faith in, in, in Jesus and they naturally jump into this disciple-making life. We have to build a culture that rewards discipleship. Fundamentally, when we look at the Bible, we see a stark reality that Jesus Um, said actually what was his job was to build the church and what is our job is to build people. We looked at that as a board too. Part of the the questions we asked of of God and of the Bible, we said was, well, what is God's job and what is our job in the Bible, biblically? You see, I think where churches have have kind of fundamentally, uh, we've sort of fundamentally fumbled over ourselves is this. Pastors, myself, and I've fallen into this a bunch. We think it's our job to build the church. But really, what God says is, is I will build. Remember, he says, on this rock, I will build my church. And then what he tells us to do is go make disciples. I think we've flipped this around. We wanted to build buildings, but not build people. And one of the things we need to do moving forward in the future is build people. With the idea that all of us are what the world sees as representations of God. You are what the world sees as as a picture of Jesus. So we could actually go through the Bible and see God's transformation plan put into practice. See, I'm interested in how do you take a Levi, a tax collector, somebody who is betraying his own people, betraying his calling, and be the kind of person that turns around and serves them. I'm interested in how do you take a Peter who was hell-bent on political revolution, that's what he wanted, and then he ended up giving his entire life 
in the political system of Rome for other people's freedom, for the sake of the kingdom. I want to know, how do you take a theologian who is deeply obsessed with stopping what he thinks is really bad theology and even persecuting and killing these, these people and then becomes one of the most prolific authors of the New Testament anyone has ever read? I want to know these stories of transformation. How do you take St. Augustine, who by his own confession, in around, he wrote a book called Confession. He was a womanizing, self-centered guy who became one of the most prolific church fathers we've ever read. How do you do that? I want to know, how do you take an entire economic system and an entire empire, and with the course of 300 years, that becomes a Christian empire in Rome? I mean, how does this happen? The only method employed by the early church was discipleship, was getting people to be apprentices of Jesus. Their only means of transformation they used. They put all their eggs in one basket. It was simply discipleship. And if we went through the life of Paul, many people think as you read the life of Paul that he has this amazing experience and then all of a sudden writes all these prolific books of the Bible. But really what happens is he has this amazing experience. He goes and meets with the the Christians in Damascus and then goes, hides out in the desert for three years to learn and to be with other Christians and to help him understand the faith. And some people think that he was with the Essenes, if you're at all interested in the history of it. And then he came back and started his ministry. Discipleship was the only means of transformation, learning to be apprentices of Jesus. The word discipleship is literally translated into the word learner, so that you would be a learner of Jesus Christ, so that we would be disciples of Jesus. We are a holiness church, which simply means that, that um, a relationship with Jesus starts you on the path of changing your desires. And we used to say Christian perfection, but a lot of people got that mixed up and thought that we, we thought we were perfect people, which we're not. What it simply means is you get to a point where you desire not to sin any longer. It means you get to a point where your desires are changed and they're actually God's desires. You get to a point where you are saying, God, not my will, but your will. That's what a brief outline of holiness is like. We are a holiness church and a holiness theology demands discipleship to Jesus' life. So I think part of the problem of the past decade, and I've done a ton of historical work in this last, really, not decade, but last century, is that we've made discipleship to Jesus optional. We've made it optional. Whereas in the past, it was never an option. It was, you enter the church and you need to enter into a disciple relationship, disciple-making relationship. That's it. Whereas we now have separated the two, we can call ourselves Christians, but not necessarily disciples. We've, we've separated the two. But when you look back in Scripture, it was completely the opposite way. The only time they used the word Christian, one, it was derogatory, and two, it was to refer to disciples of Jesus. And so we've come into an era of casual Christianity, which is killing us as a church and as a culture, right? This is what our culture and our world blasts. The casual Christianity, rather than serious disciples of Jesus Christ. We've come under the assumption that right information will lead us to right behavior. And that's somewhat true. 
But how many times have you said this to your kids? How many times have I told you? I, I can tell you that I've said that at least 15 times this week. <laughs> Clean your room, right? I've told you how to do it. Do this. I've told you how to do it. I've told you how to take the trash out. And it still doesn't work, right? We're still constantly, we're, my wife and I, like, we feel like our heads are going to explode. Maybe it's because we're dealing with a 5'3 and, and a 19-month-old child. But there's times we're like, man, our brain is going to explode. You know, we constantly have this interesting behavior. We know the right thing to do, and yet we do the complete opposite. I love this quote from Leo Tolstoy, who is a, a Russian author slash uh, kind of theologian, I guess. He summed up life's biggest problem in this. He said, man's whole life is a continual contradiction in which he knows to be his duty. In every department of his life, he acts defiant, in opposition to the dictates of his conscience and his common sense. So what he's saying is, Tolstoy is saying, a lot of times we act in complete opposition to what we know is right. Even though we know the right information, we don't do it. And so if we're going to be a church that builds a disciple-making culture, we have to address these problems. We have to address these issues. And we need to have a good definition of discipleship. And so I, I'm really comfortable, and we've looked at this a ton, I'm really comfortable in saying Matthew 4.19 is a great definition. But, um, so many of you know the problem with Scripture. And that is, there's no problem as perfect as God's word. But as people translate it into language that we know, there's little translation things that get really sticky. So one of the things I like to do every now and then is go back to the original Greek of it and what Jesus was actually saying. And I think that, um, and I've, I don't think I've ever said this in a sermon, but I think the King James Version actually gets it right. Like, I mean, King James had a lot of things right, but there's a lot of things, if you're a, a stickler about translations like me, that... I don't know, it gets confusing and that's not what it means anymore because the etymology of words change over time. So, all that being said, check it out, it'll be on the screens. And he saith unto them, I feel like you need a Shakespearean wave of your arm. And he saith unto them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Follow me, I will make you fishers of men. So as a church, what we're doing is, is we're breaking that down into three parts. Follow me, I will make you fishers of men. So let's jump right in. Follow me. This is the inclusive invitation of Jesus. He says this to a group of fishermen, and he's inviting them into something entirely different. Now, if you understood the first century culture in this time, a a rabbi does not walk up to a fisherman and say, come follow me. That's just not something that you do. You go to a rabbinical school. You go to the other rabbis, you go to the students who are learning, and you say, come follow me. But he gave them worth and value because rabbis were on the, like, the top end of the totem pole. There was no totem poles in first century Israel. Anyways, um, they didn't know about Native American culture yet. Anyways, he said, come follow me. There's this inclusive invitation. And this stage is characterized by information. Information is important but only when it's coupled with other things is it really valuable. So it starts with information. And I love what Jesus says here. Um, you know, he starts this uh, in, in Matthew 5, 1 through 2, in the Sermon on the Mount. Here's what he says to his disciples. He says, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and said to them, and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. 
So in our disciples, is, as being disciples or apprentices, I like the, words of, uh, the word apprentice. Being an apprentice of Jesus, it really does start with information. It starts with knowing what the word of God says. It starts with listening to sermons and hearing how, it, how that infiltrates our life and, and how we ought to live. Teaching is a huge part of our discipleship. And like I said, even I know people who listen to sermons in their car. They just go on the radio. I mean, there's worse things you could be listening to on the radio. That's great. And I know people who podcast stuff. That's awesome too. And I know people who, like, they're on vacation and they come back home and they listen to sermons. On, on, and I think that's wonderful. It's infiltrating your life with the information you need. I could do a whole sermon on, on knowledge, but we really believe that God is the source of all knowledge. And so when you begin getting into his word, when you begin to dig through it, and not just in isolation, but in community, with friends, when you begin to, to dig into it and, and, and speak it and hear it and, and really say, well, what does this mean for my life? I mean, your life will fundamentally change based on God's word. So it starts with information. Teaching is a huge portion of this. Learning is Learning is good. Learning from Jesus is something that we need to have as a habit in our lives until we die. I hope that when I retire, I could go back to school and learn some more. I hope after that I go back to school and learn some more. I hope I never stop learning. In fact, my wife makes fun of me, and this is a great way for her to fall asleep at night. I go on YouTube and listen to theologians give lectures because they film those for guys like me, for the six of us who like to watch those things. And like I, I watch lecture after lecture after lecture. It'll be like 2 a.m., and she leans, rolls over, and she's like, are you still watching that? I'm like, captivated. You know, some of you are like, why would you do that? But it's really interesting. Anyways. It starts with, come follow me, learn from me. And then the next stage is, I will make you. I will make you over into my image. I will make you into something. Being made new is a process of imitating Jesus. Now I understand how you might be thinking, hey, Jesus doesn't walk on this earth right now, so how can I literally imitate Jesus? We have to find people whose lives are worth imitating and imitate them. This is what discipleship is. This is why Jesus had 12 guys with him everywhere he went. He showed them. When he, got, when he walked out in the water, what did Peter naturally want to do? He wanted to imitate his, his rabbi. He wanted to step out of that boat and walk on the water because he wanted to do what he did. We need to find people whose lives are worth imitating. And even more, we need to have lives worth imitating. We need to find people who have de- Jesus so deeply rooted in their lives that it oozes out of them with every breath they take and every, every oh, I just did a sting song, and every move they make. It's the creepiest song ever. By the way, it's like the stalker's anthem. I'll be watching you. It's not creepy at all. I'm just going to stare at you and sing this song. Sorry, I love you, Sting, but you're creepy sometimes. Matthew 23, 1 through 3 says this, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The teacher of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must obey them in everything they tell you, but do not, um, but do not, I'm sorry, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. Wow. I mean, Imagine the, the teachers of this day. It's like imagine going, a, a, the, the major pastors of this day. Who are they? Rick Warren, um, a, you know, Perry Noble, some of these other big pastors. Imagine um, 
saying to them, I mean, I, I think these are great guys, and you should listen to them because they're, they're brilliant guys, so I don't really mean them. But I'm just trying to give you an idea of the stature of these teachers. Listen to what they teach because it's right, but don't do what they do because their lives are messed up. Jesus was saying there's some people we shouldn't be imitating in our lives. And, and whether we really know it or not, we, we do live in an imitation culture. Hebrews 6.12 says, We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those through faith and, and patience inherit what has been promised. We have to understand that, that imitation, life on life, understanding God working in somebody else's life, the, the community of God is so important because this is how God forms people. And I've said this over and over again. I've given the, the, the analogy of, of the washing machines. There's the, there's the top load washing machine with the agitator, and the agitator beats the stuff, uh, the stains out of clothes. But the front load, it doesn't have the agitator. It uses the clothes to beat the stains out of the other clothes, and that way they get clean because these clothes beat up on each other. See, church just start beating up on each other, right? No, that's not what we're saying. What we're saying is that God has designed your life to impact another life. God wants to impact your life so powerfully that it impacts the lives of 12, 14, 18, 100,000. God wants to impact your life. I mean, I can think of a couple people right now. Marion Spink. Miriam Spink, sorry. Always had that prayer card in her Bible. It's a lady who sat right over here, cornered me when I was a youth pastor. Cornered me. It's a little, little lady, sweetest lady you've ever met in your entire life. Joanne's mom. Pastor Dave, I need the updated list. Okay, I'll get it to you. Because she would spend her mornings praying for all of our youth kids. She led a life worth imitating. Gladys Wilson, who, who spent time in our children's department just developing kids. I think of Bertha Gavlik, who on our 50th anniversary, we were, we were eating outside here, and, and a guy who was nearly elderly, he, he was walking with a cane, I just remember this so distinctly, walks up to me and goes, is that Miss Bertha? And I said, yeah, that's, oh, she was my Sunday school teacher. I mean, and this guy w- was, was getting up there in age. You know, Bertha lived to, in, her, in her mid-90s. Do you live a life worth imitating? Do you live a life worth imitating? We do live in an imitation culture. So this, this element is characterized on imitation, if you're filling in the things. We do live in an imitation culture. When I was running the skate park here, back in the day when we used to have a skate park in the parking lot, I I loved when we had our skater kids because their claim was that they're independent and that nobody influences them and that their style is entirely their own, except for they were all wearing skinny jeans with long hair, torn shirts, and shoes that were messed up. I mean, every single one of them, they all had iPods in their ears. I was like, you guys, can I take, everybody line up, take a picture, and, and we'll show you that actually you look exactly like each other. We all imitate. Even if we claim that we don't follow somebody, we do. America has a celebrity culture where we'd love to see what the new celebrity trend is out, and we imitate that. But we also love to say, oh, no, we're independent. We do it ourselves. But if we're really honest with ourselves, we imitate people, right? We look at what other people are doing, and we seek to do that ourselves. We imitate. So this is why it's so important to quietly and humbly live a life worth imitating, because whatever people know about God, they know from God's kids. So come follow me. I will make you. 
fishers of men. And I love that the idea of fishers of men. It's really, I will make you the kind of person that naturally wants to go on mission with me. When you think about it, nobody likes the, the terms evangelism explosion or the four spiritual laws anymore. I mean, these are all methods of evangelism. And when we taught these in seminaries, we taught, okay, here's the method of which you go out and do evangelism. But really, when you read God's plan of evangelism, it was, I'm going to disciple you for this amount of time and make you the kind of person that actually wants to do this kind of stuff. Nobody wanted to go knock on doors. I mean, a lot of us did it out of obedience to our pastors at the time, but none of us wanted to go knock on doors and say, can I share something with you? We were all scared out of our minds to do that if we were really honest with each other, right? I mean, in some points, it yielded some really good results, and, and people were coming to Jesus. But then, you know, some church statisticians begin to say, did, did it really count? How many people are those actually still in church? And there's some. There's some. But it's not a huge amount. And so we began to say, wow, we didn't really disciple those people. So Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20, this is uh, called the Great Commission. And it's called the Great Commission for a reason, because it really is great. So flip with me there, Matthew 28. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came and said to them, All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of age. Now, there's this thought whenever we read this passage that we're talking about global missions and that we're going to come up and commission people to go off to India or Sri Lanka or somewhere foreign. But really what this passage is saying, if you dig back into the original Greek of it, it is simply to say, go to all ethnos. And that's the word for nations. Really, if we were to translate it back, it would say, go to all ethnic groups or ethnic um, tribes. Back in, back in um, Jesus' time, there was no nation state like we know it. That didn't happen until 1648, Treaty of Westphalia. That political science degree came in handy, huh? Okay, so the nation state didn't actually happen until then, so Jesus couldn't possibly be saying, go to other sovereign nations, although that we ought to do that as well. Don't get me wrong, we do world missions here, absolutely. But what he was saying is, he was doing this in the order of the Shema, which is, as you walk along, as you travel, impress these laws upon your children so they might be embedded in their heart and so that they might remember these laws and so they might live. And when they're older, they won't forget what you've taught them. If you were to really take this back to the original Greek and translate it, one of the things that you would, the idea you would get, because Greek is very different than English, one of the ideas you would get is as you're on your way, as you're walking through this world, as you're moving through this world, Go to all ethnic groups and give them the gospel that the kingdom of heaven is here. Does it mean world missions? Absolutely. Does it mean Los Angeles? Absolutely. Does it mean Covina? Yep. Does it mean Gondora? Absolutely. Does it mean Azusa? Does it mean West Covina? Does it mean San Dimas? Azusa? Absolutely. See, we tend to read this passage and think, doesn't apply to me? I'm not going to Mexico this week. That's not at all what this passage is saying. What this passage is saying is, as you go, make more students of Jesus. But you have to have a life worth imitating. Also, I think it's really important to note, in Matthew um, 28, 
when he says go to all nations, all ethnos, all ethnic makeups, I think it's really important to note that churches need to be multi-ethnic more and more and more. And I hope that through when we begin more disciple-making relationships here, I, I hope that we become more multi-ethnic because when we become more multi-ethnic, we begin to speak the language in the, of the world and we begin to actually be well-placed and better positioned strategically by God to reach all nations because we have all ethnic makeups. I hope that's true of our church. And, 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 and I hope that we begin to, to learn um, greater multi-ethnic competencies and things. I mean, if anything that, that um, Ferguson and, and New York and Chicago can teach us is that we still don't have great multi-ethnic competencies in our nation that we still need to learn a lot about each other. I mean, there's a lot more that, that these incidents can teach us. But as a church, we need to learn these competencies together. So we need to be the kind of people that would naturally go make more students of Jesus. So come, follow me, I will make you fishers of men. This area is categorized, is characterized by... Um, uh, this uh, information, imitation, innovation. It's characterized by innovation. I've got a triangle up here. I just wanted to show you real quick. How many times have I said in a sermon, now I want you to go do this. And, and you guys went, oh, yeah, that's cool, Pastor Dave. And then you left and you're like, what did he say? You know, I mean, I've done that in, in messages where I've gone like, I, I forgot what the pastor said. I can't remember. But one of the reasons why this doesn't work is because we don't just need information. A lot of times, a sermon will be like, go do this, go innovate. But really what we need to do is show each other how to live like Jesus wants us to live. We need to show each other. This is what we do to our kids. Hey, Emma, I want you to clean your room, and this is what it looks like. Hey, I want you to write, I mean, right now we're doing letters. Follow Daddy. Show, I want you to see what Daddy does. I'm going to do the little specs and so you can see. Hey, just as a side note, Aniko, it is like super hot. Is it super hot in here? No? Okay. It's just because I'm a guy and I'm in front of lights. And then we got to go to innovation. But I'm super hot in here. It's just the lights, I think. Anyways, we got to get lights that don't uh, burn as hot because I'm well, going to get a tan up here. But it's obvious to me that we can't just send people out and say, go innovate without showing them how to live a life worthy of their calling without showing them how to live like Jesus lives. And so as a church, one of the things that I think we need to do is we need to learn to grow in discipleship. We need to, it's not just, I mean, small groups are great, and we're going to continue doing small groups. There's, there's nothing wrong with those. But we're going to help people intentionally grow in character to look like Jesus. And right now, we've got a, a small group of people at my house. Um, I, I realized myself, I've been mentored a ton. I've gone to seminary. Um, I've read like a thousand books, but I've never been discipled in a way that's reproducible, in a way that I could just take somebody else right through it. And I went, man, that's the problem. I'm a senior pastor of a church. That needs to change. And so in January, I entered into a disciple-making relationship, and I have a guy who is leading me through this. And helping me through this. And then I started leading a side group and, and, and helping him with the next group. And now I'm leading a group on Sunday night. So we're training leaders to be a part of this. So in the next, really, two years, this is a slow process. We want to be able to offer disciple-making groups. And in fact, maybe you're here and you're like, man, I need that. I need a deeper level of just how to walk in life. We've got these little cards that simply say, 
I want to be trained on how to make disciples because I want to start a new group here soon. Or I want to enter a disciple-making relationship. And just let us know where you're at. Maybe that's you. You're like, man, I just need to do this. I need to learn deeper. I need to have a life worth imitating. I am way over on time, and I have like three pages left, so I'm just going to sum it up with this. Romans 8, 19, not verse 18. I, I messed that up. Romans 8, 19. This is the verse I've been sharing with you over and over and over and over again. And it just gives me goosebumps when I read it because it's just so true. Romans eight nineteen, The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. The world wants to see God's kids. The world wants to see God's kids in a full picture of redemption and forgiveness and love. The world wants to see that. The world wants to see real truth. The world wants us to, to see us living like Jesus lived. And the only way that Jesus did that to to develop and form his disciples was by living life with them for three years. So we need to do something like that. And we've got a a process that we're working through and working on and building leaders for. So my hope is in the next few months, we're going to be able to say, hey, we've got these leaders, and if you want to be in one of these relationships, then we want to pair you up. So be looking for that in the next few months. But what you could do right now is begin to say, I need to accept Jesus not just as my Savior, but as my teacher. The best way to do life. I want to invite you to pray with me, and maybe you need to begin praying about um, entering a disciple-making relationship. I want to invite you to pray about that as well. Let's pray. Jesus, it is just clear to me that we need to be your disciples. That the word Christian now means a casual relationship with you that does not really denote seriousness. God, maybe there's some people here who just say, I've been a Christian a long time, but I've never been a disciple of you. I've casually and culturally called myself a Christian, but I've never entered into your life in a way that's transformed me. God, would you impress on our hearts right now if we need to be in a disciple-making relationship Would you just impress on our hearts to check a box and say, yeah, that's me. God, I believe you're raising up leaders in this church. And if there's anybody here who simply needs to say, yeah, I want to be a leader in this, pray that they would check that off as well. And there's some people here today who might simply need to say, you know what? I've been watching from afar. I've been sort of seeing God work in my life. I don't know what this means yet. Maybe you need to begin a brand new relationship with Jesus right now. I simply want to invite you to put your confidence in him and to say, Lord, I give my life to you. I put my confidence in you. And I ask for you to walk along with me. And Lord, I hear that call today to just come and follow me. So Lord, I pray that you speak to us today through your mighty word. In your name we pray. Amen.